C4. So glad that you're here this morning. Want to say hey to everyone in Auditorium B. Good morning to you over there. We'll see if we can hear them. Almost. Okay. I want to say all of you uh, watching and listening online, whether you're here in Ontario or around the world, we as a church want to welcome you this morning. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to the book of John chapter 12, and we'll get there in a moment. If you sat with my parents and talked to them about me as a child, it would be an interesting conversation to say the least. Uh, my parents used to say, I am four and one. That's why they only decided to have one. Uh, but one thing they would say to you about me, I was uh, a boy of a boy in the sense that I loved all things military. Uh, I was obsessed by knights, and I read every book I can. When I went to Disney World, I bought every pirate gun available, the real ones, when they were made of wood and, and like metal, not what they have now. Uh, I had swords and bow and arrows. Some of you are like, oh, your poor child. I'm like, I loved it. I was all about this sort of stuff. One of my most vivid memories as a child is in Costa Rica. I was born in the Shoa, like many of you know, uh, but I grew up overseas. My parents were doing language school in the 80s, and so I was in Costa Rica. And uh, one time, a group of my friends and I decided, well, they followed me. I called myself the general. Okay, anyway, uh, I had my army, and, uh, and we found at a construction site two very large piles of bricks that were going to be used to build a building. Uh, unbeknownst to me, another army had formed at the same school, and we found out about them. And so we decided, as good soldiers do, to meet in one week and declare war on each other. And so we spent the week preparing, making swords not out of cardboard, like we made swords out of wood and we had shields, but we also spent the week building our castles in these huge amounts of bricks. And these were very large, so we spent the week and we would be watching each other across the field. They were building their castle, we were building our castle, and we'd be eyeing each other. Well, the day came, it was a Saturday, and we gathered together after sunrise and we watched each other. It was like David and Goliath was about to take place. We had our shields, our swords, we'd spent our week building our brick castles, and and it began. And so I'm facing down my enemies. They're facing us down. And then I let out, I think, a blood-curdling scream, charge! And we charged them, right? They charged us. Every parent's nightmare. We're hitting each other, blood and screaming. It was great. It was awesome. And as we're banging back and forth, suddenly I realized something I hadn't considered as the general. And here it is. We were all in grade two. They also were in grade two, but they had hired mercenaries in grade three and grade four. And so now we are outmatched, and so we're fighting tooth and nail, and this grade four came and grabbed me and shook me. My shield fell, and he's dragging me towards it. I'm screaming, army, save me, and he's dragging me. They couldn't come near me because they're fighting all their own people. This, by the way, is a true story. This is not exaggerated. No, truly. Okay, and so they dragged me into their castle. Now, here's the thing I did not know. They had been doing something secretly all week long in their castle. They built a literal jail in their castle. So he drags me up onto these bricks, bang, 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 bang. He has no mercy at all. He's a mercenary, right? And so he throws me in down this pit that they had built, and then he got a piece of plywood, and he sat on it. So here I am in my jail, and they even built a little window that I could look out towards ours. And so here I am, kicking and screaming as this grade four mercenary is laughing, ha, 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 on top of me. And I'm seeing my army retreat. I'm panicked now. I'm all alone, and I'm the general. And this mercenary sitting on top of me, I'm in this pile of bricks, and then it's really dark. And then it starts getting a little claustrophobic. And then I start crying a little bit, because I am in grade two. And, oh, look at all the women. Oh, yeah, thank you. And, uh, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, we're done. What are we going to do? 
Well, suddenly something happened. True story. I'm watching out my window. I think everything is lost. The plywood is there. The grade four 85-pound child, or I don't know, was there. I'm still kicking. And my army realizes I'm captured. So what do they do? They look. I see them talking. I think all hope is lost. And then they do it. True story. They charge again. I'm like, yes! And they run right at them in a way I never thought was humanly possible to the point where they storm the castle. The other kids run. They beat up the grade four. Thank you. Kick him off. Remove the plywood and set me free. And we got both castles. And I was like, that's right. Sit down. That's right. Now... I don't know if you were a kid like that, but that was sort of my childhood and my worldview. Now, I want to tell you something. That image, that experience, I want you to keep at the forefront of your mind this morning as we're in the second week of our series out of Easter coming alive. And you say, well, John, what's the relevance? What's the connection? Here it is. We're going to be discussing the role of Jesus on the cross when he comes as warrior to reconcile us and set us free. Easter isn't about bunnies and eggs. It's invasion from heaven. Easter is when he comes and takes the mercenary, moves the plywood, and actually sets us free. Now, if you read, like I said last week, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John carefully, there are seven statements Jesus uttered when he was dying on the cross. Seven profound statements. You could spend a long time preaching and thinking through those. The second last statement that Jesus utters was recorded by his best friend, John. It's a very simple statement. It's where I started last week. Jesus basically said this. It is, what does he end with? Say it loud. It's finished. It is finished. This is the second last thing that Jesus says. And like I shared last week, well, what was finished? Because see, this cry implies that something was being accomplished. Something was being done that had been planned out beforehand. So many people, when they read that, wonder if this is just the words of a dying man. Uh, Was he finished? But if you read it closely, you actually know he doesn't just say this. He yells this from the cross. And Jesus is declaring something that has eternal power and consequence. This is not hopelessness. This is not, like I said last week, a death gurgle. No, no. This is triumphant declaration that he has come to accomplish something and it's done. Unlike what so many people think, Jesus' death was not a mistake. And like I shared last week, it's not just a political act only. It wasn't just the religious leaders of the day getting their way because they were threatened by Jesus and his teaching. It wasn't just the Roman military killing off another threat to Caesar and their so-called Roman peace. And it wasn't just another martyr standing up against injustice and those who had more power knocked him off. Those factors are real. Those factors are historic. They make up the mosaic. But see, they are not in their rightful place unless you look from heaven itself. Because all of those things find their context from heaven. The chaos of Good Friday was actually being used to accomplish the sovereign will of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, who, because he himself is love, decided to provide a way back to himself. Now, like I was sharing last week when we began the series, Jesus' closest friends got angry at him a lot, or at least frustrated, because Jesus always talked about his coming death obsessively in their minds. More than once, they told him to tone it down. More than once, they said to God in flesh, could you just shh, shh? Because they were frustrated because they wanted what he was doing then and they thought what he was at that moment was the full deal. But Jesus knows he's come for a greater thing. John ten seventeen reads like this, the reason my father loves me is I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, Jesus said. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the command I have received from my Father. 
This is what we're working through in this Easter series this year. What was happening at that very moment? What was going on right there? As Jesus lay dying on the cross and then he utters words like, it is finished, what was happening? What was being accomplished? What was Jesus dealing with? What was Jesus taking? What was Jesus giving back? What was Jesus doing for you? What was Jesus doing for every person you will ever meet and the billions you have never or never will meet? What does it really mean that it is finally finished? After Jesus came alive, like we talked a little bit last week, those that walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and were so changed by Jesus and his message tried to find words and images and ideas to fully express the power and the beauty and the magnitude and the life change and the hope and the kindness of what he was doing on that cross. And so they looked around at everyday life, trying to find images that would express eternity itself. Looking around, trying to express the most significant act in history. And so, like I shared last week, they chose the language of everyday. They looked at every part of life and said, what can we draw? And so they used uh, the image of the court system, the court of law. And they used the word of financing and accounting and the world of business and the world of sacrifice or worship. They looked to the space of personal relationships. And they looked to the harsh and gritty and very known experience of war in the battlefield. And in those images and in those ideas, we begin to see the full picture, the kaleidoscope of what was really happening when Jesus was dying, when Jesus declared it is finished, and then later when Jesus came alive. Now last week we looked at the first four, but today like I've already referenced, we're going to look at the last two, the world of personal relationships and the world of war. And in those two things, we are going to see what Jesus was accomplishing when he died on the cross. Now, let me go back to one other verse that I referenced last week, John 12. But let me keep reading because I stopped last week and didn't keep going. In John 12, 23, Jesus, thinking about his death, said these words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And we talked about that last week and used the image of trees. But look down at verse 31. He said, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, do you see that little phrase, prince of the world, that title? Do you see that? The word prince in Greek is the word ruler. And it's a stronger word than I think a lot of us would catch this morning. It actually is the word that was used in the Roman world to express the highest official who oversaw a city, or the person who ran a whole region in the Greco-Roman world. Here's what's being declared here, which will set the stage for our understanding this morning. God is the ruler, the ultimate Lord, over all of creation. But Satan, that's who this is referring to, that ancient fallen angel, is the functional Lord of the world. Now I want you to catch this this morning. Because when you read the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, there's probably about six to eight themes that bind the narrative of the Bible together. And one of them is conflict, spiritual conflict. All the way back in Genesis 3 and Genesis 2, it's very interesting. Adam and Eve walked with God. There was no shame, no guilt. And God said to Adam, I give you rulership, dominion over my world. When Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and eat the fruit, they gave the keys away to the store. And suddenly Lucifer himself becomes the dominion owner of creation. You you don't understand the power of this, this teaching in Scripture. When Jesus came to earth, the first thing that happens after he was baptized is it said he was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to face off against the God of this world, the prince of this world. And Jesus is tempted as he fasts and prays for 40 days. What is the last thing that Satan tempts Jesus with? Let me read it to you in Luke 4, 5. It says that the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. 
And he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor. Notice this. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. See, whether we're comfortable with this or not, the universe is not just what is seen, but is what is unseen. And the scriptures are clear that creation itself and every human being, though we're made in the image of God, is under the dominion, under the rulership of Satan. Paul said it. We learned it in our book study in Ephesians, Ephesians 6.12. He says, our struggle is not against people, flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if that isn't damning enough, one of the most critical verses in the Bible that explains why so many people never can embrace Jesus fully and deeply is this. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age, that's another description, the prince of this world or the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they, notice it, cannot. They have no ability to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, when you read scripture just as it is, it talks about not only a wrestling match between good and evil, it actually talks about ownership on two sides. But Jesus comes along just before he dies, just before he's going to go to the cross, and this is what he declares, that the cross event was going to be the time where the prince of the world was going to be broken, driven out. The cross event was a battlefield. Yes, Jesus had come to be our substitute. Yes, Jesus had stepped in and become our person who dealt with, to, to deal with holiness. He takes God the Father's just wrath. He cancels our sin. He becomes our forever scapegoat. But he also comes to deal with the enemy we cannot overcome. See, we need to get this in our core. There is a grade four boy sitting over every human being on earth. They're in spiritual jail and they can't do anything about it unless someone charges and sets them free. It takes an external force that goes beyond programming, beyond strategic planning, beyond church... Pro no, no. This is something that has to come from heaven. One of the best verses that summarizes why Jesus was born, why he lived, why he taught, why he cast out demons, why he did miracles, why he died, why he rose from the dead. Why did Jesus come? It's here in 1 John 3.8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. That means owned. And by the way, you notice that's all of us. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Notice. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You want to understand what Easter is about? You want to understand what Good Friday is about? Right there. Why did the Son of God appear? Why did he walk back into his creation that had rebelled against him? Because he was coming as the Prince of Peace to deal with the Prince of the World. This is the heart of what he's talking about. And I want you to catch the power of this. See, when Jesus was stripped naked and spit on, when Jesus was being slapped, when they mocked him, oh, hail king of the Jews, when religious leaders and Roman authorities and the crowds turned on him, today is Palm Sunday, but we know that the shouts turn into different shouts to crucify. When they put on the thorns, when they mocked him with the purple robe, when they beat him, when they whipped him, and then when they crucified him, and they mocked him. See, both the human rulers and those who were inspiring the human rulers thought, we have won. But what they do not understand is the place where they thought they were winning, they were losing, because this was God's plan all along. All along. So, now at this moment, when you begin to see Easter, not only with Jesus being our substitute in dealing with the issue of wrath and the issue of sin, but you see it as rescue and invasion. Do you begin to see the power of what Jesus really did and what he's still doing today? One of the best ways to see the images of reconciliation and personal relationships and the image of battlefield is actually found in an old Christian hymn that was sung in churches just like ours 2,000 years ago. Paul decided to include this in a letter called Colossians. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn now over to Colossians chapter 1. 
I, I spoke on this passage in the last two years, but it is, it is the passage that brings these two images of Easter together. Now, the song that was sung was included because it's such an unbelievable summary of our faith. See, the song, if you read it, which we will in a minute, starts before Jesus came alive. It starts before Jesus' death. It starts before Jesus' crucifixion. It starts before he even arrived at Calvary. It starts before the death sentence, before the trials, before the arrest, before Gethsemane. It starts before Jesus' life. It starts before Jesus' birth. The song actually goes farther back, before Malachi, Jeremiah, Solomon, David, Saul, Samson, Joshua, Moses, before Joshua was, uh, Joseph was in Egypt, before Jacob, Isaac, even before Abraham. When you begin to read the song, you realize it's before Cain and Abel, before Adam and Eve, before animals, land, water, sun, moon, and stars, actually before day and night. See, the song starts before there even was a start. And when you start in eternity past, only then does the Easter event become so unbelievably clear. Colossians 1.15, hear the word of God this morning, church. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. From all eternity, Jesus in his very nature has always been and will always be the image of God. Only in the face and person of Jesus do we fully know who God always was, is, and always will be. Because Jesus himself is fully human and fully God. In Greek philosophy, an image of something was not separated from what it was coming from. It shared the same DNA. See, what Paul is saying here is Jesus is the exact visible representation and illumination of God's essence. In Jesus, we see that God is creator. In Jesus, we see God as redeemer. In Jesus, we see God as holy. In Jesus, we see God as mercy. And in Jesus, we see God as love. And Jesus is about to come and rescue people from darkness. That's why we can, as Christians, declare with confidence that is not our own, God is holy and God is love because Jesus not only taught these things, but he came back to life and we get to come back to life too. He says he's the image of God and the song keeps going and he's the firstborn over all creation. Now I want you to watch this this morning. Jesus is not part of creation. Notice that this is very critical. He is above everything in creation. Firstborn of creation is from Psalm 89. It is a title. It means sovereign one. So here's what you need to understand. Jesus is over everything that has ever been created. Anything that has power in any form, Jesus is greater. Now watch this. Who's got power? Anyone who's got money. People who have uh, 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 military might. People who are inventors. Great intellects. Whoever has influence or leadership, they are still under Jesus. Why? Because they're still all created. Well, it's not just for the human being and the human experience or, or even nature. It's beyond that. Every single angel that God created, including those who chose to raise the fist against heaven, they still forever have a beginning point. They are still created. So here's the point. Jesus is firstborn over all creation, including the prince of the world. This is where this song is about to go. And then it gets really exciting in verse 16. And by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether, here's the language, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and all things were created, notice this, for Jesus. Everything we see and we don't see, all we understand, all we're discovering, and all we have not was created by God the Father through Jesus the Son. Human, stars, fish, oceans, from grass and trees, water and Adam, Paul says all unseen and seen powers were made by Jesus and for Jesus, and as we've learned, they are all under Jesus' feet. Now, I want you to notice this this morning here in, a, in Auditorium B. Look to that screen in the middle. I want you to see this. Thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities. Well, what's that? For Paul, in his language, this is the way he talks about the fallen heavenly host. 
We saw it already in that scripture out of Ephesians. Paul is basically saying, before even the rebellion in heaven, every angel that served God was loyal. Satan raised his fist and wanted to be God. One third of the angels joined him. There was a war in heaven. They were kicked out. But here's what Paul is declaring, and here's what the church used to sing 2,000 years ago, and I love it. See, here is the point, and here is the power of this. He is over thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Satan may call himself the God of this age or or the prince of this world or the God of this air, but our king is always greater than theirs. So this is the power even before the cross event, even before Easter, the one who was born in that little manger was not to be messed with because he was creator. And so now... I love verse 17 because this is starting to roll towards this grand defeat. Verse 17, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. See, I want you to see the power again of this too. God didn't just create everything and say, I'm out. God didn't wind up the universe like a clock and say, well, I'm not interested. No, God's involved. Jesus is the rationale, the rhythm, and the reason. Jesus is the system behind all systems. He's not like Star Wars. He's not the force. He is a personal God that keeps all things together. As one theologian said, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He is the controlling factor in creation. Jesus, who walked around 2,000 years ago at 30, kept the universe from spinning out of control. Now, As the song is progressing, a shift happens. It's like a new verse breaks out. And the new verse jumps from the old creation to the new creation after Easter. It's like the song skips Easter completely. And the song starts talking about how not only Jesus is creator and sustainer, but now God has involved himself. And not only has God involved himself, but he came and lived and died and he came alive. And out of this event, which he skipped, a new supernatural community has been formed and the community has become alive. Verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the source of the church. Every Christian on earth right now, I've preached this before, every Christian right now, we're united into one body. Don't you agree with that? Right now. Every single Anglican, Baptist, Methodist, Charismatic, closed brethren, open belly, you fill in the blank. If they know Jesus and love Jesus, whether they like it or not, we're all going to heaven together. We need to get used to it. Anyway, so, right? Yeah, like I say to my friends, I'm going to be there forever, so like me now. Just let's work it out. So we're one body. We're one body, but we're not just one body here on earth. Every person who has died, who is now in the presence of Jesus, they haven't left the church. They're the church too. See, even Jesus' work transcends space, time, and death. We are one body united through Jesus himself. But never miss this. Jesus is the reason why churches gather, not us. It's a Jesus-centered thing. When churches start making it about them, they begin to actually writhe against the DNA of their very being. So Paul says, we've got this great creator who's Jesus Christ, and he's started a new creation called the church because we're the foretaste of what's coming in the new heavens and the new earth, and then he does it, or at least the song does it that he hijacks. He puts us right in the middle. Right at this moment, he takes us between the bookends of beginning and end, And he talks about the cross. And right here he begins to invoke the great image of war we need to discuss today. It says in the second half of verse 18 that Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in, what's that word? Everyone say it loud. That was weak. Say it again. Everything. In everything he might have the supremacy. Everything we're celebrating today. Everything the church is celebrating around the world right now, 
Everything we're going to celebrate on Good Friday, on Easter, is found right here. Jesus has come alive. The resurrection of Jesus is true. Jesus has physically come back from the dead. And as Jesus was raised from the dead, so the same for all of us that know him and have relationship. This is our hope. We who have love and relationship with Jesus will be resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. We will come alive as he has come alive. And we will have new bodies and there will be no sin, no death, no mourning, no pain. The old is gone. The permanent new will come. It will forever be spring going into summer. See, that's the hope we have. It's what Jesus said in John 14. Before the long, the world will not see me anymore, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will live too. So Jesus, through his resurrection, has become supreme. Now watch this. Jesus, at his resurrection, when he declared, it is finished, and then died and rose again, he conquered, he subjugated, he vanquished death. He dealt with sin, and oh, side note, he took down the demonic too. He is the only one who has come back from the dead permanently. No one else in history can really tell us what happens except him. Because he's the only real supreme authority on the whole issue of life and death and resurrection. See, Jesus, through his resurrection, rules over all the great enemies that we have faced since the beginning. Jesus has brought what was supposed to be into the future into the now. And at the center of it is finished, at the center of him coming alive, is his declarative war on the devil and his millions, billions, trillions, whatever, of fallen angels. See, when Jesus declared it is finished, he was saying supremacy has come. And you say, well, tell me how that supremacy was achieved. Just turn the chapter. Colossians 2. Just flip over or navigate over. Colossians 2.15, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is what was happening as Jesus lay dying, as he lay dead, and then he rose again. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, I want you to see this and take this home and take this into your family and into your school and into your workplace because this is truth. Jesus has disarmed. Do you know what disarm means in Greek? To take off, put off, and strip off. Jesus strips the kingdom of darkness, rulers and powers and authorities of their power. He makes them... He, he takes their importance and makes them impotent. He takes their potency and takes back what was stolen in Eden. All that would lead human beings to fear evil or to honor evil or invent them as God or, or being terribly afraid of being owned with them is broken at the cross event. See, Jesus, when he says it is finished, he disarms the kingdom of darkness in the ultimate sense. But not only does he just disarm them, watch this, he triumphs over them. Triumph actually is a war image from Rome. It comes right out of the ethos of Paul's day. When a general would win a great war or an emperor, they would come back to Rome itself to celebrate. Hundreds of thousands or millions of citizens and slaves would gather and they would celebrate a triumphal procession. The general or, or, or the emperor, depending on the situation, would be at the front. And then the whole army that had won the war with him would be celebrated behind him. And behind the army would be all the items they had captured. And watch this. And behind all the items is the vanquished army in chains. They would have to follow behind the army that conquered them in public. See, that army was publicly humiliated, publicly overcome. They were publicly made mockery of. They had become not an army anymore, but a spectacle. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He, in the ultimate and full sense, incapacitated and dethroned the devil and all of his hordes. They, in the ultimate sense, have had their dignity removed, their splendor is removed. They are weak, numbed, broken, and beleaguered. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, here's what happened. He rose in victory, and they suddenly realized they had now to follow begrudgingly because they had lost. There's a great old African hymn I shared a year ago, and I love it. He says, Jesus Christ is the conqueror. By his resurrection, he overcame death itself. 
By his resurrection, he overcomes all things. He overcomes magic. He overcomes amulets and charms. He overcomes the darkness of demon possession. He overcame dread. And here's what I love. And when we are with him, we also conquer. If it was an African church, they'd all be like, yes, right now. There'd be, yeah, there we go. People would be up dancing. They'd be like, people, what's your problem? Now, many of us who've grown up in church have asked ourselves a question. We should never be afraid of doubt and questions. Some of us have gone, well, Jesus, if, if they knew that you were going to come and do this, why did they crucify you? I mean, if, why were they so stupid? Oh, I don't know if you've ever dealt with a demonic before, but let me tell you something about them. They are brilliant and they are, <laughs> and they are intuitive in a way that we will never understand, but they are also so filled with the DNA of sin that they are blinded by pride and rage. They didn't believe that the cross event actually was going to turn on them. One of the most rare verses on this rarely preached in churches is found in 1 Corinthians 2.7. And I'll let me just read it. He said, no, this is Paul saying, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and God destined for our glory before time began. None, notice this, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. You got to understand this. As Jesus lay dying, they thought they had won. They thought that heaven could be stormed again. They thought that humans would never be able to know God again. They thought that sin and death and Satan's reign would be a permanent, eternal experience. But at that moment, they were outmatched. At that moment, they were outwitted. They were undone by the very actions they were inspiring in their human followers. And and this is where the words of Jesus land. It is finished. Now the prince of the world is driven out. Now, this is powerful because we need to understand what's already been done. Now, the song keeps going, verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Paul again reminds us who we're talking about. Jesus is God himself. You can't have the fullness of God and not be God. He said it in Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. But now the next image comes up. He moves from the gritty world of war and victory to relationships. He moves to personal relationships. And Paul, once again, to bring it home, plunges us back into Good Friday and Easter. Verse 20. And through Jesus, notice the word, to reconcile to himself all things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's just take a moment to pause and be honest about something. The thing that so many of us want in our lives is peace and reconciliation. How many times have we mourned the loss of a person in our life? An ex-husband, an ex-wife, a kid that's walked away, one of your best friends. And because stuff has happened, you've done it, they've done it, you came out on a different political view, you can fill in the blank, something was done, something overt, something inovert. How many of you have sat in Thanksgiving or Christmas meals with family and something happened 30 years ago and everyone acts okay, but everyone knows there's no reconciliation around that table? Maybe you've sat in it where everyone knows there's no reconciliation because you're throwing the turkey at each other. I mean, we all know how painful it is. Every one of us here, Auditorium B, online, we know how absolutely terrible it is in relationships when peace is lost and what you had is never coming back. Look at our world. Why do you think the UN does such a difficult job? They're trying to bring peace and reconciliation to people who are tribal, people that have guns, people that rule the world. Like this is something that is the core of our struggle as human beings. But this is what we declare as Christians. When Jesus died on the cross, he reconciled us back to God. He brought us back into our original intentions. He puts us back on friendly terms. He makes us consistent, compatible, and this is what I really love. And he deals with and restores all the history that separates us. This is what he says in verse 21. He pulls no punches. Once you were alienated from God... And we're enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Every human being before they meet Jesus on earth right now, the most religious Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, the most religious person who's a Christian but has never met Jesus, the most secular atheist or agnostic, the really good, the really bad, the religious, the not religious, every human being, the Bible says, is alienated. 
isolated, alone, a deep sense of not belonging. We as human beings, since the beginning, have invented gods we're comfortable with, or, or we've been inspired by spiritual forces that tell us what God is like, or we worship ourselves, or we're enslaved to sin. God has become foreign to us and alien to us. See, we are not in relationship. We are not on good personal terms with God. Actually, the Bible says we are enemies in our minds. How we act on a daily basis shows that we really don't want to walk with him. And the only way to deal with hostility and false worship and sin and brokenness is through Jesus. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you whole in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He makes us friends with God again. All the history that we have done and our parents did and our grandparents did and you fill in the blank all the way back to Adam and Eve, it gets dealt with and God shows up in our life again and says, I just like to hang out. We can be friends again. You see this, this verse right here? Very important. Paul brings back two images from last week. He reinvokes the world of sacrifice and worship and the courts. See, without blemish, when sacrifices were given, the head of the household, the man would bring a sacrifice. It had to be unblemished. It could not be blemished or it wouldn't be accepted. And he would put his hand on top of the sacrifice, whatever it is, and this is what the hand on the head of the animal meant. I am affiliating myself with this animal, and as it is unblemished, so God before you, I want to be unblemished too. Would you, through this sacrifice, make me okay? And not only that, then see free from accusation, here's the other thing that's being invoked. When we face God, death is guaranteed, right? We're all going to die. When we face God, In all of his holiness, in his supremacy, in his glory, here's the beautiful truth. When we face him, God the Father will look at Jesus the Son, and Jesus will say, they are not accused because I've covered them. Not guilty. Convict citizen. Enemy friend. This is what's going on on the cross. See, as you begin to again to begin to work out all the different images, you see the power and the magnitude and the glory of what Jesus is doing. God loves human beings. God loves sinners, all of us. We who are unworthy of his love, he comes out of love to rescue us, not because we are so amazing and lovable, but because he himself is love. He can do nothing else but come after us. That is why he's done all this for us. In one act, the crux of history stands the cross, where Jesus dealt with all the barriers between us and God. There he thought of us by name when darkness fell, when the whole unseen realm of darkness taunted and roared at him, when the Father had to turn his face. And when we embrace Jesus, all the metaphors that Paul has used and others become reality. In the court of law, we are convicts, we're made citizens were justified in the world of finance and accounting he takes a debt we could never repay and he moves us from red to black eternally in the world of economics he says that we who are slaves to sin owned by the devil and cannot get away from death are bought back out of a slave market we could not pay for and he economically redeems us out when we face god god sees jesus our altar jesus our high priest jesus our mercy seat jesus our sacrifice and Jesus our forever scapegoat. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. He pardoned us. He liberated us. He filled in the gap for us. He stepped in for us. He stands for us and he pays the ransom for us. And there he also decided to make human beings his friends. His friends. I'm a friend of God. You may love or hate the song, but it's true. It's true. My wife was telling someone this week to come to Easter. And inviting her, she says, I don't want to come. My wife said, no, you need to come. Got very interesting. And the woman said, well, it's too late. It's never too late, my wife said back to her. This is all in the parking lot outside the gym, back forth. It's never too late. Well, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. She said, why do you want to go to heaven? Jesus is going to be there. If you don't want him there, you won't, what? He's here. If you don't want him here, you won't want him there. You've got to come to Easter. If you want to get to heaven, meet Jesus now. See, friendship is the essence of our movement. We, when we see Jesus... We're going to see the lover of our souls and our best friend. 
in a way we've never understood. He's going to be greater than your friend, greater than your children, greater than your spouse. Jesus is better than all the relationships you think have value because he is God. And not only does he justify us, but here's the last thing. At that moment on the cross, Jesus becomes our savior. Jesus, the warrior, overcomes all evil. And at that moment, Jesus Christ drove out the prince of this world right there. He spoiled their forever plans. He made mockery of them. He made them a show. And in front of heaven and earth, he put them on public display. I love how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority all the cross. And he marched them, I love this, naked through the streets. Uh, Amen moment. Yes. That's what our Lord did to the thing and the things that have scared us since the beginning. He says in Colossians 2.6, So then, just as you've received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. We didn't receive a set of morals. We have not as Christians received a set of laws. We have not just received, you know, sort of the best guide how to live our life. No, we've received a person. We've received a relationship. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he is Lord. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a revolutionary. He's not just a prophet or a great thinker or a philosopher. No, he's God in flesh. And he came to get us out of darkness and bring us back into light. Why did the Son of God appear? To destroy the devil's work. This is the good news we hold out to the whole world. The whole world. So... As we now come, I just want to say a few things and then I'll end. Some of you gathered here today in this auditorium, auditorium being online, you again, I just, I have to speak to you. You are not Christians. You may call yourself spiritual. You may have the title Christian. You may be agnostic, atheist. You may have another faith. But you who are here today and online, listen to this, please. Everything I've just preached is for you. This is for you. This is real. If you come to the place where you accept Jesus, you are declaring that all other worldviews and religious expressions are deficient, and you decide to embrace Jesus, who is Christ the Lord. He is the one who comes, and he deals with everything that scares us in all places. Death is dealt with. Reconciliation is possible. Sin is overcome. And the evil one, whether you believe in him or not, is removed from your life and your family. Ownership gets transferred from a thug and a tyrant to love. That is what is offered at Easter. That is what is offered to the community. And so if you have never been in the place where you have said, I want Jesus to be Savior and Lord. Church, would you pray right now? Auditorium B, the same. Would you now come to the place where you say, yes, yes, everything that Jesus has done, I want this too for myself. I want friendship with God. I don't want to be alienated anymore from him. I don't want to be owned by anything, including myself. I want to be owned by Jesus. So would you close your eyes as I lead in this prayer? And if anyone is here, take a moment to wrestle with this, if this is you. Take a moment in silence. And if this is you, would you raise your hand now so I can lead you in a prayer. You online, if you're on the go train, a plane, a subway, raise your hand anyways. Just do it right there. And let me lead you in this prayer. Okay, Lord God, yes to Jesus. On this Easter time, I embrace Jesus. I want Jesus. I accept him as Savior and Lord. I want to live in him and with him. I want to be friends with God. I want to be without blemish for the first time. I want to be declared not guilty. And I want to be set free from anything that's holding me and blinding me. So right now I ask Jesus to become my Savior and my Lord. And I turn from my life and trusting in anything else. And I say yes to him now. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I just want to say that if you've just done that, please tell the person you come with. There's going to be elders at the end of the service. Come tell them and let us get you some information. For the church, I end with this. Two things and then we're done. First of all, isn't it unbelievable that Jesus loves us? Like really? Like Let me read Romans to you. Now everything you've heard I've preached this morning. Romans 8. No. 
In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you see the power of that verse now? I'm convinced. I know that I know that I know, Paul says, that neither death or life, angels or demons, the present or the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This is true. And when something whispers in your ear, you're not good enough, he doesn't love you, he's not coming for you, you read him back this and you read Colossians 2.15 and say, I'm sorry, I think he stripped and make mockery of you. You have no power anymore. But here's the other thing. Friends, if this is not just an emotional moment, but this is truth, if this is real, like real, real, we as a church, like every other church, need to step up and invite people. No, like really, like if this has happened in us, don't you want this for your neighbor and your friend? Don't you want this for the person who bothers you the most? Don't you want this for your enemy? Don't you want this for the person you're estranged from? See, if this is truth, if the world is owned by the kingdom of darkness, but a greater prince has come who can unblind people, who takes them out of darkness to light, who gives eternal life, why would we not, en masse, be inviting as many people as possible to hear the good news of Jesus? Fear is not good enough for us anymore. Durham is owned by the other side, and I'm not satisfied, and nor is Jesus. He has conquered the evil one. They've been stripped. This is like the mafia showing up, but they don't have bullets anymore. They'll intimidate us and say, oh, you can't, your friend's never going to come. Don't you know? No, 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 no. God is greater than what's holding them. So here's what I say. This week, with courage, every one of us, take the invitations, go online, and go to every person and say, there is good news. Come to church. And if not our church, go to any church that loves Jesus. This isn't about C4. But get to a church and hear the good news of Jesus because he has liberated me and he's going to liberate you. No one in Durham has to live in fear anymore because fear has been conquered. It's conquered. So take the invitations and understand when you're inviting someone and taking that invitation, it is an act of war. And yes, there will be resistance. And yet, doesn't matter. Stripped of their authority, Jesus has dealt with them. See these trees here? There's two also over in Auditorium B. On Sunday night, hundreds of us gathered to start one week to fast and pray for our region, our friends and neighbors and enemies. Thank you for all of you that did that there and on home. But what we did is we took these leaves because it was a symbol of coming alive. And people wrote down the names of friends in streets and cities they're praying for. And they said to Jesus, I want life this Easter for my friends and family. And they wrote this down. These are only a small symbol of the thousands of prayers that have happened in our church and others. And so take this image in your mind and realize that these trees represent what God's going to do on Friday and on Easter. I hope you come expectant next week. We're giving out good news next week and people are going to get saved. It's going to happen. And this is a symbol. And so after we respond, I just want to say as we end the service Here's what I want to say. There are some of these leaves left. After we're done, if you want to write them out, great. If we run out of leaves, take some of the leaves and write on the back of those. But the critical thing is invite and pray because what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago is still relevant in a way that is desperately needed today. God is coming for Durham. Let us be his hands and feet. Let us actually pray and then act for the Lord of the universe has overcome the prince of the world. Let's stand and celebrate the good news that we hold together.